The following edited podcast has been declassified by the Bonsai Institute for Biomedical Engineering and Strategic Information. Hong Kong Cavaliers, Blue Blazer Regulars, Radar Rangers, Kaladni Brothers, and Rug Suckers to Five Minutes of Bonsai, the only podcast on the internet that discusses the W.D. Richter cult classic, The Adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai Across the Eighth Dimension, five minutes at a time. I'm Josh Horowitz from the Five Minutes of Trouble podcast, and my co-host, who I've been privileged to discuss this film with for over 20 hours straight, and who is definitely a big deal, Mr. Brett Stillo. Why, why, thank you, Josh. Yes. 20 straight hours without interruption, by the way, folks. <laughs> 20 without interruption. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of time to talk about one film, huh? Oh, when we started this in December of 2017, I mm. remember it well. Yeah. And uh, now it's, it's a bittersweet time. It's the end of the term. Uh, it's kind of quiet here at the Institute. I've been clearing out my locker. <laughs> I, I didn't get the grant to uh, do the summer... Uh, hiatus in, in Iceland with the rest of the Institute. So I'm kind of stuck here. I don't know what I'm going to do over the summer. So uh, I don't know. Uh, well, but we got, yeah, we got one episode left. And in, in some ways, it's the best episode. Yes. I know. It's a, it's a very, very good episode because we're going to be brought home by two Blue Blazer regulars. Uh, these are keepers of the bonsai flame for many, many years. I introduce to our audience Mr. Dan Berger, who is the editor of the World Watch One newsletter, and Steve Madsen, contributor to the World Watch One newsletter and the 5 Minutes of Bonsai Bunkhouse. So uh, welcome, Dan, and welcome, Steve. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yep, yep, thanks for having us over. Keepers yeah. of the Flame. Yeah, that I... sounds entirely too official. <laughs> <laughs> there were some dark years, though. Yeah, so. yeah, that, exactly. That's what I'm saying. It, you know, that, I would say maybe the, you know, the 90s, pre-internet, hmm. and... Uh, you know, the, the, maybe the first few years after the movie was released. But yeah, you guys kept it going. And that's why you have super low Blue Blaze irregular uh, member numbers. <laughs> yeah, but the crazy thing is that, I mean, you, you can look at some of the, even like the Usenet feeds from like late 80s, early 90s, and people were still talking about Buckaroo Banzai. They were still distributing, you know, newsletters, you know, the, the script was out and that was a big deal. And were, were you guys even a part of it back in the, the 80s, early 90s as well? So I think the original um, Institute newsletters were, were still coming out until about 1990. So it was paper in the mailbox, kept it going until about then. No, that sounds right. Uh, there, was a, there was a fairly large shift in editorialship. It originated at a 20th Century Fox with um, Denise Tathwell at the time. She's now Denise Okuda, uh, Michael Okuda's wife, and um, uh, Diane Wick, um, who is and actually a co-Illinois native. She's, uh, I think, down in the Champaign-Urbana area. And uh, I think Diane was the one working at 20th Century Fox at the time, and they had all this stuff that was sitting in the uh, storage rooms of 20th Century Fox from the marketing of the film, and it was all going to get tossed by 20th Century Fox. And they said, well, why don't we connect this material with the uh, the fans of the film and try to keep the, the flame alive and 
you know, in order to get the, the sequel that, you know, everybody wishes had actually mm-hmm. happened. So uh, after that, it the money kind of ran out because 20th Century's uh, uh, or 20th Century Fox's patience with the lack of activity ran out. And uh, it shifted over to Colorado where there was a, an, uh, I don't know if they were online. I think they were doing the convention circuit of selling memorabilia. And they'd been licensed to um, sell bonsai uh, uh, patches and uh, like stickers and stuff like that. So that was at about 1990 when that shifted over. And there was a gentleman named Alan Smith um, who was running the newsletter at that point for a couple of years. And then it just kind of died out. Hmm. Alan Smith almost sounds like Alan Smithy. <laughs> <laughs> now he's a real guy. He's here in uh, Portland. Um, then it went to uh, ArcLight's mailing list and website. That's that's where I connected with Dan and found a few more Blue Blazer regulars. And then Dan and Alan did the uh, was it the twentieth anniversary newsletter? Yeah, that's a, right. Two thousand four. That's when it started uh, kind of picking up again because then we had the. Uh, DVD and the reissue of the novelization shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it was hard to even find a copy of Buckaroo Banzai back in those days before the DVD. I, I just remember, I, I think I had to get my copy off of eBay back in the late 90s. There was really no other way of, of finding it. That sounds uh, but, about right. But it definitely had a, a bit of resurgence, yeah, after after it came out on DVD in the 2000s. You know, Brett, it's it's interesting. I mean, we, we covered Big Trouble in Little China very extensively. And while that film certainly has its its fan base, it never really had its own newsletter. Uh, you didn't really find it in some of the fan circuits out there. And I wonder if that's because there was no promised sequel. I, I wonder just how much having the, the whole, you know, see him in the next episode with the World Crime League sort of contributed to keeping the conversation going. Yeah, that's an, an interesting point. Plus, you know, and, and an interesting thing about Bonsai, we've talked about it, it sort of has this you know, literary DNA in it with such a great novelization with, mm. a, you know, a crackerjack novelist who wrote the screenplay and a great writer-director. There's something, uh, <laughs> for lack of a better word, wordy. Mm. Uh, you know, you're, you see Big Trouble in Little China, you're more inclined to go to the playground with your friends and beat each other up. Uh, <laughs> uh, Buckaroo Banzai, um, yeah, you want to, you know, you want to sit in one of the uh, dojos in the Institute and, uh, you know, write up, you know, write up your thesis. <laughs> you know, I think all of that is true, but it's also the, the Blue Blazer regulars. Uh, the fans are, are part of that. They feel like they're part of the movie. So it was a much more inclusive, group-oriented kind of thing that, that mm. kept it going. That uh, As great as yeah. Big Trouble in Little China did, there was no, there's no fan club within the movie that then could become without as well. Yeah. No, I think yeah. it had a lot to do with the kinds of fans that uh, Buckaroo Banzai attracted as well. For example, Ernest Klein, who, you know, you may know that name from Fanboys and from uh, <laughs> a certain movie that's out right now, uh, Ready Player Something. Ready Player Something. One, yes. <laughs> um, but him and a number of other fans who were starting, he actually, I think, was running a website back in the 90s um, during that, the, the sort of dark times. And he, of course, also wrote a fan script for uh, Against the World Crime League. Um, but he was very much that sort of Usenet personality that I'm not sure had crossover with uh, fans who, you know, were kind of going big trouble in Little China hmm. uh, at the time. 
Yeah, uh, but what I what I'd like to know uh, is is just uh, Dan and Steve. So tell me about your your first exposures to the film. Maybe uh, Dan, we'll start with you. Oh God, that was in the theaters um, when it first came out in '84. Uh-huh. Uh, must have been fall because I think that in summer it was released, and then uh, you know when they had the initial showing of the film, it really took a while to get into theaters around the country because nobody knew how to market it at 20th Century Fox. They just did not know what to do with it. So it was probably early October when I saw the film, and uh, I just remember not understanding it, but loving the idea of it more than anything else, and uh, loving it enough to want to see it again. And I think by about the third time after it had gone on to VHS, that's when I really began to get it. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a tale that we've heard on on many occasions from from people who've been on the show, and just whenever you mention Buckroot Bonsai, that it, it it takes a good number of watchings, I think, to to truly appreciate it. It's pretty um, dense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Steve? So I saw a, a full color ad. It was in the inside front cover of all the Marvel comics, like the first week of July, nineteen eighty four. It was real graphic. It didn't have any kind of uh, picture of Buckaroo or anything, but. You just ask the questions, you know, who is Buckaroo? He's a jet car driver. He's a neurosurgeon. He's an adventurer. And it's like, oh, this is, this is in, this is in my wheelhouse. <laughs> and then probably uh, saw the trailer. There's a lot of good movies that summer, like Star Trek Three, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones 2. I must have saw the trailer with one of those and was really looking forward to seeing it. And, uh, a buddy of mine from uh, college theater days and I were living in Southern California and we got to see it. I'm sure it was the first week it was out at the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood, California. Oh, nice. Yeah, and the, it had a big crowd that really appreciated it. And we thought this was going to be huge. Hmm. Oh, that's very different from my memory of the film because I think I was in, uh, it was at the Golf Mill Theater in Niles, Illinois, and I think there were seven of us in one of those <laughs> giant theaters that only the 80s, you know, could produce where there's, you know, it's not like today where they have like little boxes of theaters, you know, 15 of them all in one place. It was just like two and they were giant cavernous affairs. And yeah, it was it, there was not many people to fill that cavern. <laughs> yeah, I think we must have had a bunch of medical students there because they really love the uh, brain surgery scene and then uh, howled with laughter at uh, auditory myotis so I, I don't know where they were coming from but they liked I would, it i would just like to think maybe that in the surgery scene you know the surgeon who was the technical advisor who's in that scene i think um no he's not the one eating eating noodles but you know maybe he and his and his med students went to go see it could have just happened to be there that would have been cool stranger the, things have happened the week right after that was the uh, World Science Fiction Convention in Anaheim. Mm. And uh, I went there for one day and met Terry Erdman, who's the publicist, and he was handing out headbands. Um, he must have had a mailing list, too, because I think that's how I got on the uh, the original newsletter mailing list. Oh, and wow. so we, we all thought it was going to be gigantic at that point. Hmm. Uh, so you have an original... Buckaroo Banzai headband. I do indeed. That is so Lucky. cool. That's great. I, I hope you're wearing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only thing I'm wearing, Brett. Okay. Yeah. That's good. I, I wanted that image. It's staying with me. I can do the rest of this podcast. It's you know, good. sad to say, I, the only, I guess, paraphernalia I have from Buckaroo Banzai is maybe an old VHS 
you know, copy. <laughs> I don't have any merchandise. I've got plenty for, uh, for big trouble, but, uh, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll have to see if I can at least get a team bonsai button one of these days. There's gotta be a few out there. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm trying, what's the toy company that does the, you know, they specialize in, you know, action figures for cult movies. So, I mean, you know, they did the big trouble line. What company is that? I don't want to, all I can think of it, it's oh, not the ones that make those, those sort of cute plastic vinyl dolls. Yeah, 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 yeah. Funko, I mean, maybe? Thank yeah, you. Thank it. you, Funko. Somebody, we need to start a letter writing campaign to Funko. Yeah. We, they are, we are way overdue for a three and three quarter inch uh, Emilio Lozardo, John Big Boutet, and of course, B. Bonsai. Yeah. I mean, and, and all the different members of Team Bonsai, they have so many great outfits. You could just have a whole line of perfect Tommy ones. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, the, the kit-bashed, uh, custom-made one, thank you, but no, I want one, you know, I want two. One that will remain in the package, of course, because I'm that anal, and then one I will play with in the sandbox. I like it. Uh, but uh, we, we do have to sort of uh, finish off everything, and so we have to discuss the final minutes yeah. of Five Minutes of Bonsai. And uh, those are minutes 100 to 104. So actually, this is going to be four minutes of bonsai, but that's okay. Uh, minute 100 starts with Buckaroo and Penny being intimate, as the Black Electroid commander says, so what? Big deal. <laughs> and uh, they end with the end of the film. Yeah. So yeah, we, we get, of course, the, uh, the, the whole sequence of the bonsai march, which is pretty iconic, and we'll, we'll certainly talk about that. But before we get to it, just a couple of things about... Uh, about what's happening with the, the final sort of kiss and, and some of these weird red lettering that we're about to see. Uh, because, yeah, we, we see Buckaroo and Penny, they share this kind of passionate, electrically charged kiss. Penny closes in, uh, and we close the Venetian blinds, and we see this red lettering that seems to blink on and off with the static charge. So, so what is that exactly? Any ideas? It's an ad for Blade Runner. <laughs> <laughs> Even though that had been released two years earlier. Uh, it was just a reminder. Have you seen Blade Runner? It'll be out on VHS. <laughs> if you like this, you probably would like Blade Runner, which came out two years ago, and shame on you for not seeing it. So there's still time. And had the cinematographer, right? Same thing there. Yeah. There well, at least for a little while. At least a little. Yeah. <laughs> Featuring the same cinematographer sometimes. <laughs> for I think it was two days, actually, which is kind of sad. It was he that just, short. He just did the nightclub scene, and that was it? I think he did a couple others, but that was the the bulk of it, really. Wow. Yeah, we were kind of speculating on the show what what the film would have been like if they had kept... Was that Conan Camp or, or Cronenweth? No, that's Cronenweth. Cronenweth. Yeah. Yeah, if, if he had been on it for the whole time, how much different uh, the whole film would have been and if that would have been better or not. It's always hard to kind of play that crystal ball game, but <laughs> uh, I don't think it's as hard in this case. I think it would have looked better. <laughs> I think Dan did an interview with Rick in one of the newsletters where he asked him, what, what's the one thing you would have changed if you could have? And it was to, to keep the original cinema photographer. Mm. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, Cronenkamp, you know, he did a, he did a, you know, he was a veteran guy. So he, he did a, a fine job in some spots, but you could, you know, you can tell in some other scenes where it just looks, um, you know, he's just punching the card. At, at, at the clock at work <laughs> so yeah to have a, a vision like that all the way through that you know bluish neon glow that also sort of says you know la in the early 80s hmm. yeah 
No, no, definitely. But yeah, no, getting back to that sign, I, it's not actually, I don't think those characters are Japanese. I think that's a Chinese, uh, those are Chinese characters on there. So oh. I'm not exactly sure what's going on with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is kind of cool because, you know, without that, that lighting in there, it's not, it doesn't have the same mystery, maybe, mm-hmm. right. so to say it. Yeah. Now the, the whole thing kind of reminds me of what they did in Big Trouble in Little China where, uh, you know, the the artist kind of had a little bit of fun when lightning gets taken out. You actually see one of the lightning bolts kind of form the, the Chinese symbol for carpenter as it goes away. <laughs> so I was wondering if maybe this was something akin to that. You know, maybe saying, you know, this is by W.D. Richter and, uh, you know, we, we had... So on uh, doing the film. Figment Fly's fact uh, page, he's got some partial translations there. And ah. it's it's something similar to the headband, which is... Uh, what was that? Uh, Beauty in Everyday Life, the, the characters on Buckaroo's headband. Ah. And it says something similar. There's a lot of uh, references to life and beauty, but the translator couldn't make it all out and couldn't come together with uh, you know, a complete sentence. But mm-hmm. life and beauty. Mm-hmm. That sounds like me on a normal day, not being able to get <laughs> all, entire sentences out. Yeah. <laughs> actually, I'd like to go deep in the box and speculate that that is actually... Uh, a secret message from Hanoi San and the World oh. Crime League. Ooh, I like that. that. Yeah, he had an agent sneak into Fox into the editing room, and that basically says, these are all lies. <laughs> this man is the greatest <laughs> enemy of humanity you will ever know. Your pal, Hanoi Shan. <laughs> well, and that kind of makes sense because, you know, not a second later, what shows up is the title card for Against the World Crime League. So, yeah. coincidence. Ah, yeah, no, that that's right. But before we, we get to that, though, um, you know, I mean, the commander, you know, he says, so what, big deal. But then we get the white dotted lines across the screen. I mean, that's part of the blinds. But when I, every time I see that, I keep thinking that it's like Pong. <laughs> <laughs> so then you start to see the things going up and down, little ball going across. It's Pong. Yeah. <laughs> well, Josh, you and Brett uh, kept careful track of when Buckaroo was ionized and giving out those charges and such throughout the whole movie, and it was kind of inconsistent. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm, I'm thinking the, the wing commander there gave him a little more juice is what's what's going on. Yeah, that makes sense that uh, they had him on a throttle because, yeah, they it seems to come up, uh, yeah, some, as we noted, sometimes it comes up, sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it seems to very conveniently come up when, when Penny needs it the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. I mean, you, you do see that uh, that Lectroid sort of give a grin uh, just before that kiss happens that makes her come back to life. So, yeah, I guess, guess he's pulling the strings somewhat. I, I'd like to think that the last line in the movie uh, originally came from David Beagleman. <laughs> 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 I can see that who I would also like to speculate may or may not have actually been a member of the World Crime League. Oh, I, oh, I think that's, no, that's no speculation. That's got to be true. <laughs> <laughs> Damn right. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, no, no, the film is over. And yes, watch for the next adventure of Buckaroo Banzai, Buckaroo Banzai against the World Crime League. And they even have the correct font treatment as the title. So... Okay, so here's the question. So what happened? So where where was the sequel, and why didn't it ever happen? That's actually not as mysterious as a lot of people would uh, would like to think. Um, I remember uh, interviewing Rick about this, and he very simply said, uh, when 20th Century Fox saw the, the, the receipts come in from the movie, 
there was no never ever going to be a sequel. There was just no reason to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, now there was everybody had contracts, uh, kind of going through several different movies if that eventuality came about. But since there was no economic uh, impetus for it, it just never happened. But then the interesting thing is, so, I mean, were, were they just kind of, you know, being optimistic by putting that at the end of the movie? We, we see that occasionally in some films, uh, you know, like, like look for the sequel. Actually, I'm kind of thinking of uh, uh, some of the Mel Brooks movies, you know, like History of the World, you know, how they have at yeah. the end, you know, here's the sequel. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's all a joke. Yeah. Uh, well, of course, the, you know, the James Bond movies in the 60s, I think, really, you know, perpetuated that. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah. I think you know it it might be worth sort of noting, you know, in the 80s to me at least that's sort of the the beginning really or may, you know maybe not the beginning but that's really when franchising or movie franchises really embedded themselves. And you know you you know you sort of knew sequels were coming and you expected sequels. You know sequels prior to say the late 70s early 80s were not so common really. Um, so yeah, it seems like that was just a, a really good bookmark of, you know, plus, you know, that, that was already, you know, that was their intention from the beginning was to do a, a whole series of these things. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so but, Josh uh, and Brett, you guys know that, uh, Hanoi Shan is supposedly a historical figure that predates Buckaroo Banzai by about 50 years. Oh, no, do tell, do tell. I, I, I don't think I've heard this before, but, but, but please uh, go on about Hanoi Shan. Yeah, this uh, guy named Harry Ashton Wolf was a true crime writer in the early 20s. There was a British guy that worked for the Surete in Paris and wrote a series of uh, uh, short stories about his adventures. But um, some of them were true, and you could tell it was based on contemporary events. Others, probably not so much. But the only reoccurring character in all his writings was Hanoi Shan six different adventures of this guy. Uh, it was actually called Hanoi Shan? Hanoi Shan, but with the S-H. Ah. Not the Z. Uh-huh. That is mind-blowing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, here's a question, because uh, we, we kind of know that there's an influence of the character Doc Savage into Buckaroo Banzai. Was, was Doc Savage also, did that come out originally in the 20s, or was that a little bit later? Uh, a little bit later. Uh, I think uh, 30s through... Um, late 40s was doc mm. savage's time yeah but but interesting how you know earl mac roush had sort of taken storylines and characters you know in, inspired by stuff from that era and kind of brought it to uh, to now yeah interesting yeah hanoi shan how about that no one of the interesting things about the whole doc savage connection is that there really actually isn't one that's um there's you know the similarities are remarkable but uh, I remember uh, talking to Rick and uh, to Mac about this, and both of them were very much like, you know, this is more based on Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. and uh, uh, James Bond with a, you know, a dash of Adam Ant and such <laughs> uh, more than it is Doc Savage. Uh, and <laughs> Rick had a really funny line about that. What was it? Is something like, uh, oh, Doc Savage is just too much of a tight bum. For for Buckaroo Banzai, so the, the influence seems like a natural fit, but it really wasn't there. Hmm, that's interesting because yeah, I'd never really noticed the Doc Savage connection until I you know watching it and doing the podcast, and yeah, I had wondered you know had uh, 
had Rick and Mac, you know, picked up, say, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the reissues of the, the paperback novels with the great James Bama covers in the sixties and seventies. Um, you know, in either way, they, they gave it this whole, you know, it was a very, it's like a pulp formula, but it's got this modern, you know, seventies and eighties sensibility. And yeah, but Buckaroo is a much more like interesting and cerebral character. Hmm. You know, yeah, Doc Savage much. is kind of a big weightlifter. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's more than that, but yeah. Yeah, he's got. They're not the same. <laughs> They're not the. They really aren't the same guy. I think some of the similarities were speculated in just the type of people that Doc Savage would surround himself with. These kind of band of of heroes that you know would go on his adventures with him. Yeah, I'd much rather hang out with a guy named Reno or New Jersey than a guy named Monk. <laughs> Sorry, pulp fans, but that's that's how I roll. <laughs> but uh, talking a little bit more about the about the sequel, so there was, I guess, a, a version of the sequel that was potentially the World World Crime League. Uh, there was the comic book series Return of the Screw, which was written by uh, Rausch and Richter, and that's probably the closest that we're ever going to see to it. I mean, it does feature Hanoi Shan and a reappearance of John Worf and Lizardo. I just read the comic book series not too long ago, and it's it's kind of cool. They bring back some of the old characters, and they have a couple of new ones. Uh, and I mean, is that true? Have you guys heard about that? That that possibly being the storyline for what was going to be the World Crime League? Not so much the World Crime League, but that was actually was a pilot uh, script for uh, Buckaroo Banzai: Ancient Secrets and New Mysteries that was mm-hmm. being shopped around back in the late '90s, early 2000s. Uh, that was about the same time that the um, actually it was just before the issue of the DVD and the uh, the reissue of the novelization. Hmm. So th- that was, and then there were two scripts that were created about that time. The first one uh, Fox deemed was too dense to produce, and so they actually had Earl MacRoush uh, write a second version of the script, and that's what mo- almost note for note uh, appeared as the comic book hmm. or comic books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think um, they were going to include the Lectroids in the the theatrical sequel initially, but for the comic book and the TV series, they wanted to stick as close to the movie as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of one of the neat things in the comic book, if you if you ever have a chance to read it, uh, they they actually do show what John Warfin would look like if he wasn't in Lazardo's body. You get to see him in his Lectroid form in, in one of the scenes. I remember oh, that. Right. And that was interesting. Yeah, there were some interesting ideas and um, sort of treatment of the material going on at that time. But I remember, uh, because I we actually did a, some coverage of the production of the comic book at the time that it came out. And there was, uh, I wouldn't say it was uh, conflict, but there was creative tension between uh, Rick and... Uh, Joe Gentile, who's the editor over at Moonstone Books, who, who produced the comic book, hmm. uh, over the ending, because um, uh, <laughs> Joe really wanted to wrap things up and kind of have a, a bow at the end. And in the uh, initial script, Rick was very much sort of like, well, we want to keep this open-ended because, hmm. you know, it's sort of like the World Crime League. We're hoping that there are more of them. And uh, we, we kind of want something to build off of in the future. So uh, it... it it was interesting watching the development of that on the sidelines doing the newsletter. It was kind of fun. Hmm. And then, of course, there's also that fan script that Ernest Klein of Ready Player One fame uh, did, which you mentioned before. Yeah, that's this sort of fan script of, 
of the World Crime League, and you can actually download that on his website. Uh, we I remember we made a, a link to that a while back. I just remember that one because back when I was doing my stuff for the Wing Kong Exchange, somebody pointed out that Jack Burton appears in that. And and yes, there is a scene in that where they tie in the two universes of Big Trouble and, and Bonsai because Jack Burton and the Porkchop Express is a Blue Blazer regular. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, that's would be awesome. a much better bus driver. <laughs> yeah, that would have been perfect. In, instead of getting Hootkins as the bus driver, they would have had somebody looking like Jack Burton. I don't know. Wouldn't that kind of be like having a second perfect Tommy on board, though? <laughs> but I think it'd be good for Tommy because Jack is less than perfect. I think I think for Tommy, it would be just like fresh meat. You know, I think with Tommy's, uh, you know, sarcastic at times demeanor, he would just love having because for I think for Tommy, it'd be like having a dumb Reno around. <laughs> yeah, but one who's impervious to the sarcasm just because he's just not on the same page with it. All. <laughs> this is true. This is true. He's got that Teflon personality, but I, I think Tommy would you know definitely get his target practice in. And uh, now we, we get to talk about the uh, the aqueduct scene. So this has been sort of spoken about uh, by by many people, many film buffs out there is probably one of the best credit sequences out there. I mean, it's got, uh, you know, the, the great music by Michael Boddicker. We get the whole cast of good guys return to basically take a bow after the film, including Rawhide. Uh, and we can sort of speculate as to how this is possible or, or <laughs> what what's going on here. I, I think the interesting thing is uh, some info that we got from Michael Boddicker when he was on. Apparently, this sequence was actually filmed a whole year and a half before the film actually came out, just for the trailer. And Boddicker wasn't originally signed on to do uh, the music for the whole film. He was just supposed to score the trailer. And so that Bonsai March theme that we're hearing was already kind of timed out to uh, to a certain certain song that we've mentioned before by Billy Joel. Yeah, having a Uptown Girl. Never heard of it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that's accurate, though. Oh, yeah. No, it's not. It isn't? The trailer, the march was filmed much, much later than the movie. And uh, there's an interview with uh, Lewis Smith, Perfect Tommy, in the last <laughs> newsletter. And he talked about how he had a reaction to the hair dye. Oh. And, uh, but after the film wrapped, you know, he grew his hair back out. Uh, the sores healed. And then they called him back again to do the, the march in the aqueduct. And he had to re-dye his hair. Ouch. Huh. So wait a minute. So then were were there two versions of the march that were filmed then? No, I think it was just the one that was uh, essentially pick up at the end. Uh, huh. I, and, and Rick talked about it uh, recently. But was that when we were, uh, I forget what the context of that conversation was. But he was, um, I think someone was asking him about that sizzle reel or the, uh, you know, the extended trailer that was put out. And they were trying to figure out the sequence of when this stuff was produced. He was like, oh, yeah, 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 no, this must have been uh, assembled or edited together um, much later because of the March scene, because, you know, that material is in there. And that was obviously filmed, I think, it was like a couple of months after uh, principal photography wrapped. Huh. Yeah, it's another quote from uh, Rick where he was talking about the one nice thing Beagleman ever did was give him the money to hire the choreographer and bring the crew back for that because he thought it needed one more touch. Oh, interesting. Cool. And it, it's quite a touch. Uh, you know, I, needless to say, I, I love this whole sequence. And, you know, the composition and the choreography, uh, it is super cool. 
kind of stating the obvious. <laughs> <laughs> Getting back to, to Perfect Tommy's outfits, I love how his changes mid-March. If you look at the beginning of the March, he's in that white bare-chested getup. And then at the end of the March, he's in uh, the kind of grayish suit that he was wearing uh, during the, the prison scene uh, in uh, New Jersey, the jail. Oh, how funny. Is that right? Yes, yeah, it to- is. <laughs> and he's towards got red the pants. End. Oh, how funny. Yeah, towards the end, Buckaroo loosens his tie and uh, Rawhide loses his jacket and puts on his hat, but everybody else is wearing the same stuff all the way through. Wow, I never noticed that before. But Tommy completely head-to-toe changes. Yeah, he does. It's And and why does he change? He's perfect. He's perfect. (laughs) At some point in a previous episode, did we speculate that might be one of Tommy's powers is, you know, a quick change? You know, like the old vaudeville quick change artists. You know, he actually has a wardrobe of seven or eight pieces, and he's just, you know... I, I think we could safely say Tommy is probably the kind of guy who changes his clothes three, four times a day. <laughs> you know, he's like, well, we're going out to dinner? Hold on. I'll be right back. Yeah, he's kind of like a fashion mood ring. <laughs> <laughs> I have some notes, actually, about uh, just, just where they filmed this, because it's it's actually not far from where I live. Uh, it's, it's actually filmed at the Sepulveda Dam in the San Fernando Valley in California. Uh, according to Wikipedia... The dam itself was built by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in 1941 in response to floods that occurred in 1938 that killed 144 people. So it was built for $6.5 million, which is the equivalent of about $117 million today. And we see this dam in, in several other films. Uh, it's actually featured in the gates of the New York Maximum Security Prison in Escape from New York, and it's also uh, as a backdrop in the movie Gattaca. And I thought this was also the same flood control channel that we see in Terminator 2, but that's uh, that's a different one, something in North Hills. And I'm trying to remember if Rick... I don't remember if Rick was saying that they got a permit to do it there or if they were doing it on the DL. <laughs> I forget, but I want to say that they may have just kind of, you know, bar- barreled in there, got their takes, and then got the heck out. <laughs> kind of like to think it would be the latter. <laughs> And that maybe it's just, it's an open secret that certain places, uh, you know, like the Bronson Caves, I don't know if you need a permit for that or not, but, you know, that one gets used a lot. And uh, funny about how many uh, movies uh, this location has appeared in. I'm not surprised, and yet it's like really interesting. You know, I, I one thing I love about it, again, I was saying it's it's the compositions, the choreography. This This could be the beginning of the show. You know, yeah. it definitely reminds me of the very stylized openings you'd have on old TV shows where they would actually film the opening and do something special, maybe have some animation. And, uh, hmm. you know, that that wide shot when you see Buckaroo coming towards the guys and they're all sort of spread out. In particular, it reminds me of the, the 60s show, The Avengers. Hmm. And they're really cool openings. So hmm. it definitely makes you want to see more adventures. Well, now I want to see if Jim O'Kane can do a, a mashup with the music from the Avengers going over this March. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, my, my note about this is that it, it does kind of feel like like the TV show credits that you would see, you know, uh, even the, the font used for the credits and the pacing, you know, where you see a bit of marching and then the credits come on more marching. It, it's got that TV show feel. Yeah. It's just, I guess, uh, iconic of, of the time. Yeah, but just uh, kind of talking a little bit more about this. So yeah, the the rope is thrown, Buckaroo appears. So he's wearing his gray suit, his pink shirt, and his bow tie. And uh, 
it, it's kind of like the suit that we see uh, that he wears, I guess, in the poster and then also in Ready Player One. You know, the, the kind of iconic Buckaroo Banzai look. Yeah. Isn't that, an, in fact, his press conference uh, outfit? It may have been. I believe so. Yeah. Except he's not wearing his red glasses. No. Well, that would have shut down the production. That's right. That would have been right. the fourth time. <laughs> Never again. Maybe that was. Maybe that was the deal. I'll give you the money for this, but no glasses. <laughs> he had to actually. He actually had to give Beagleman the glasses. He just seemed all right. Okay. All right. We're done. Um, you know. All you know. Of course, I've seen this sequence many, many times. But you know, one thing that struck me this time is the order that you see the Cavaliers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one thing Josh, you and I have talked about a lot is, uh, you know, the introduction and emergence of New Jersey. Uh, yeah. He's, you get the feeling he's going to be Dr. Watson. If we do have further adventures, uh, he's going to be the main sidekick. And, uh, but, you know, before you see New Jersey, you see Tommy, who's, you know, we've talked about him being sort of like Buckaroo's little brother. Mm-hmm. You know, he's the he's the impetuous, impulsive one. So you have... Those are the first two guys who you see coming towards Buckaroo. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that that makes an interesting trio when you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Buckaroo, Perfect Tommy in New Jersey. And Tommy, yeah, he's wearing his uh, Artie's Artery outfit showing his perfect chest. Yeah. <laughs> and it's this sort of stylized, you know, antithesis. You have one guy who, yeah, looks like he just stepped out of a, a music video. And then another guy uh, who looks like, uh, he didn't make the audition for the music video. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, because New Jersey is appearing in his full cowboy getup, uh, what, what would you say is the reading on the gold bloomometer just for for this appearance? Oh well, let me let me dust it off. I've I've made some adjustments <laughs> lately. Uh, I've downloaded the the new update uh, from the institute. They were kind enough to give me that. So, uh, ooh, this is it. This is interesting. I'm, I'm you know he's not even saying anything. But I'm getting a 7.9 here. You, you guys see the, the reading there? See how oh, the yeah. red is, is just kind of cresting like that? Yeah, it's, you know. Well, uh, I love how his grin just keeps getting bigger and bigger. I think that's what it's responding to. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> he's, he's, that's good acting. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think it's worth mentioning, yeah, when we first see New Jersey in that outfit, yeah, it's clownish. He looks ridiculous. <laughs> Where are your spurs, New Jersey? Uh, now, you know, the outfit isn't wearing, he's wearing the outfit. He's owning it. Yeah, he's owning it. Exactly. You know, damn right. I'm New Jersey (laughs) and, uh, Reno's never going to make fun of him again. (laughs) Well, he's proved himself certainly under fire. Yeah. And, uh, and then we get, uh, we get our wide shot of, you know, four more members of team Bonsai approaching. Uh, including former guests of the show, Billy Vera. We get uh, Pinky Carruthers jauntily uh, joining the march. We get our white-jacketed Billy Travers. And, uh, you know, I also have a couple of comments about some of the credits that we're seeing uh, over some of this. So, interesting that John Lithgow is actually credited as both Dr. Emilio Lizardo and Lord John Warfin. So, I'm wondering, is this because of the whole dual personality thing? Or is Lithgow getting credited for playing Lizardo during the flashback sequence as a separate character. He got paid twice. Yeah. He got paid twice. <laughs> He's got a great agent. <laughs> uh, and then there's also a credit for Jonathan Banks. If you'll remember, he was the the hospital guard, the guy who played Ermintrout. Uh, he's credited as Lizardo Hospital Guard. 
So my question here is, did Lizardo actually donate lots of money so they could name the hospital after him? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that definitely fits into the universe that, you know, he's trapped in a sanatorium that's named after him. I find that, I like that irony a lot. <laughs> and, uh, but, but then, yeah, the, the big surprise is that Rawhide appears. So now my question is, does this, is this supposed to take place before the events that happened? Or is this just sort of like a curtain call? I'm thinking curtain call. Um, because there's no real indicator that this is something that happened before otherwise. Um, mm -hmm. And really, since yeah. it's coming at the end of the film, it would be an odd thing to kind of, you know, loop back like that. Yeah, well, and John Parker's there. So yeah, and John, exactly. Yeah, John yeah. Parker's there and Penny's there. Mm -hmm. And uh, Now, nah, it wouldn't really fit into the timeline. But now, now hasn't there been some speculation uh, uh, you know, that the, uh, Rawhide survived? Or was it simply Clancy Brown really wanting to come back for the sequel since he enjoyed the movie so much? <laughs> no, I think that was actually a World Watch 1 thing. So in the newsletter, um, the fans who were putting that out were very disappointed that he wasn't coming back. So yeah. they came up with this kind of fan theory that, um, that Rawhide doesn't die at the end and is actually put on ice, essentially, kind of like Disney's head. And uh, that he will be... <laughs> He'll eventually be brought back, um, you know, due to some medical breakthrough that uh, Buckaroo comes up with. Hmm. Yeah. Well, if, if that's the case, then I want Sam the Mechanic to come back, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sam the Mechanic. Who's the wise guy? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Owen Wilson was there in the uh, Team Zizu march, too, and he was dead by that time. Yeah. Hmm. Good point. Good mm -hmm. point. Well, you know, we know that Wes Anderson definitely studied this scene. So, yeah, that 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 kind of thematically makes sense. Hmm. But then I I come back to the the one scene and I we commented about this when we first see Scooter Lindley at the garage. If you look on the back wall among all the other posters, there is a poster of Team Bonsai marching in the aqueduct. So, <laughs> that's a sort of bizarre time warp thing going on. Huh. Now, here's a question and I'm I'm not scanning, I'm being honest. Is do does Hakita show up later in the march? He does not. Okay. No. That's gotta be an availability issue, is my guess. Right. Yeah. If we go canon, I would say that, you know, this is somehow Hakita is responsible. This is this is something <laughs> to do with time and space and crossing dimensions. And uh so that that would be my answer. And uh, I'm gonna go get some coffee. <laughs> and I think well, to do it right, they'd really have to have young Hakita and old Hakita at the same time. So nice. it could have been a technical issue. Nice. And and if this is supposed to be a curtain call, where are the bad guys? Wouldn't it have been kind of fun to mm -hmm. see like a, a march next to them of all the big bootay and Johns and, uh, you know, Warfin, Lizardo? Maybe that would have been the next movie as they close it out with all the foes doing the march again to kind of call back to the first movie. That would have been I like cool. that. I like that. And maybe they do like an evil version of the March theme yeah. in minor key. <laughs> minor key. That's right. And very metal. <laughs> I think really you can't get, you can't get electroids to March. I think you would just see this, this you'd pan through Yo-Yo Dine and you'd just see them in their lounge chairs eating screaming yellow zonkers. <laughs> I think that's the best you can get for them. Or they're just totally out of step, you know, just uncoordinated <laughs> and looking around. Yeah. Yeah. That's my worldview for it. <laughs> you know, and then one one character I miss here is, you know, where's Mrs. Johnson? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there are a couple noticeably absent. 
could have been a scheduling thing, you know, but, uh, you know, that, that's one character I wish you had had a few more scenes. Hmm. Yeah. That, that would have been a nice character bring, to bring back to a, a second because you see a lot of Eunice and I think of the novelization and, uh, it's a character I think that actually Rick and Mac have called back to a couple of times, uh, during our conversations with him by email. Hmm. She's the one that runs the show at the Bonsai Institute. Yeah. And, you know, I, I mentioned the Avengers earlier, the fact that, you know, she's Mrs. Johnson. And of course, what, she's supposed to be like 18. And yeah, she's basically running the, the Institute for Buckaroo. But I just, I've, I've often wondered, okay, Mrs. Johnson, is that a little nod to Mrs. Peel? Perhaps. Perhaps not. Hmm. But it is a definite maybe, but... And then talking about a couple more characters who show up. So, yes, we get Reno joining the march behind Buckaroo. Uh, Pinky does these sort of big dramatic steps to, to catch up. But everybody's got very serious expressions. That's part of kind of the, the fun of this whole scene. You know, they, they never break character, really, except for maybe Pinky. Yeah. And uh, they all turn in unison. They see John Parker walking over uh, wearing that awesome silver jacket. And he's, he's sporting his Rasta look as opposed yeah. to wearing the mask. Yeah, I, I didn't know that they had hired a choreographer for this. Uh, but yeah, this, in retrospect, that sort of makes sense because it is, you know, the timing is so sharp here. And they are in step. Mm -hmm. Maybe that was the person who suggested Uptown Girl. Hmm. <laughs> no, actually, I think that may have been Boddicker because um, he was, you know, producing the music at the, well, that's obvious. Of course he was producing the music, but he, uh, he needed to give some sort of temp to, for the tempo so that they had something to kind of use as a, as, you know, as a track to, to get the timing right. And he was like, yeah, it's going to just be it to the timing of Uptown Girl. Let's go with that. You know, it's interesting. We, we asked him about that when he was on and he mentioned that I don't think it was him who actually chose what music was played. Uh, he was pretty much provided with what the tempo was going to be, ah. and and that was a godsend to him. He said he was able to really use that to to come up with his theme. Okay. Good Either way, I'm just picturing somebody playing a cassette in a boombox at the Sepulveda de Dam. <laughs> yeah, we asked Billy Vera, and he he remembered it was something like that. Yeah, with Uptown Girl, so pretty cool. Uh, and then I have uh, a note about some of the credits. So. There's a credit for John Walter Davis as Star Surgeon. So who was that? I think that was uh, the anesthesiologist. You mentioned him earlier, the, the surgeon who uh, was both the consultant and an extra in the scene. Mm -hmm. Was he the one eating the noodles? No, because that's, you know, the OR is sterile. The, that would be a guy in the gallery who's observing the surgery. Hmm. The anesthesiologist was... He was the other doctor in the scene who was not looking at the surgery. He was looking at his stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and let me see. Then Penny appears. She's wearing her pink Artie's Artery outfit. Uh, we also get a credit for two Kolodny brothers and one rug sucker. There are, there are two rug suckers uh, that we see who appear. Uh, apparently one rug, rug sucker may have irritated uh, the guy who did the credits <laughs> and was not included. <laughs> Uh, or just, you know, perhaps he had an outstanding warrant, so he just made a request that he was not, his name was not mentioned in the credits. <laughs> that would have be... been cleaning rugs that day, too. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you see that rug sucker in the assault on Yo-Yo Dine. You see him getting out of the van, that rug sucker van, and then he's in the march, too. 
So I don't know why he didn't get a credit if the Kalodny brothers did, because you, you barely see them at all. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, well, I, I think I remember what my note was here, because they, they mentioned call in the rug suckers, but there's only a credit for one rug sucker, and that I think that's Jerry Peterson. That was a guy who did the, the double saxophones. Exactly. Yeah. Perhaps yeah. simply an oversight. <laughs> you know, so whoever, whoever was, you know, doing those credits, you know, they, they just wanted to go home early, so, okay, rug sucker. <laughs> what do you mean there's two? <laughs> Stupid we're we're going to start to get some interesting shots of uh, of feet, you know, Buckaroo's white shoes, uh, Reno's double belts and skinny leather tie, uh, and uh, and here is the point where there's a little bit of of uh, wardrobe controversy. So we see these feet that are wearing two toed ninja shoes, and for the longest time, I used to think that this was Pinky shoes because once you see the feet, then you see another cut of Pinky walking. But I was looking closely, and it turns out those aren't Pinky shoes. Because if you actually look at around uh, 2 minutes and 31 in, in our little clip here, you'll see Pinky marches with pink shoes. So who is wearing the two-toed ninja shoes? Yeah, that's Rawhide. You can see him uh, right towards the end uh, after he's taken off his jacket and put on the hat. He's still wearing those ninja shoes. Mm-hmm. So interesting choice. You would think somebody named Rawhide would be wearing... You know, cowboy boots or something, but no, he's he's got those distinct ninja shoes. Interesting. Yeah, when I was a kid, my dad went on a business trip to Japan, and he brought me back a pair of those, and I thought they were ninja shoes, but he said, no, that's what the uh, Japanese construction workers wear. The high yeah. iron guys are up on yeah. the buildings, and that's that's what they wear. And it's like, oh, I, I thought they were ninja shoes. I'm so <laughs> disappointed. So wait, are they iron-toed ninja shoes? Well, nowadays, the Japanese version of OSHA do require, and they do have iron-toed ninja shoes, which it sounds pretty deadly. <laughs> <laughs> iron-toed ninja shoes. It, it does become a bit of, a, of an euphemism. That guy's tougher than iron-toed ninja shoes. Yeah. <laughs> Brett, have you ever worn uh, ninja shoes like that before? I, I've never worn any ninja shoes, uh, to be honest. I hope I hope you guys don't think less of me. But... Uh, yeah, I, I can already hear the rumblings among the fans about, no, 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 those, those are Pinky shoes. It can only be Pinky. Curse you, editor, for implying and making that uh, suggestion. It's stuck in my brain. But um, I don't know. I thought about it, and, uh, you know, it, it, it just fits with the whole theme of, you know, one thing about Buckaroo Banzai is the whole East meets West, or it's not even uh, really East. East meets West, it's East and West are doing a dance together. Hmm. And, uh, you know, the character's name, Buckaroo Banzai, you know, he's he's a cowboy and a samurai, and probably to Buckaroo, there's no difference. It's hmm. all the same. Probably, you know, to Masato Banzai, you know, he just kind of saw the two different icons and said, oh yeah, they're exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and it kind of uh, gets back to, to the movie being... Uh, it's sort of this blender, right? That just takes everything and mashes it all up together, you know, be it genre or be it sort of, you know, this cultural uh, zeitgeist of East meets West and really how uh, people in the 80s are preoccupied with Japan at the time. And I mean, they still are now with anime and so forth being very popular. Um, but it's that whole idea that the eclecticity of the film is um, it's one of its great attractions, I think. Mm hmm. And uh, moving on from there, we get a credit for special makeup designed by The Berman Studio, Inc. And I looked this one up. It said, 
Uh, if you look on the Star Trek Wikipedia, I guess they call it Memory Alpha, the Berman Studio was an Emmy-winning makeup effects house that did uncredited special makeup for Star Trek III. And they also did many TV shows, including Grey's Anatomy, The Tracy Ullman Show, Nip Tuck, and The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. And aside from the Lectroid work that they did in Buckaroo Banzai, they also did the makeup work for Sloth in The Goonies. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a uh, relation between Sloth and the Lectroids. In, in spite of that that very impressive list of credits, they, they never, were, in my opinion, they never topped Electroids. Mm. Well, Ignorant. Sloth likes baby Ruths. I'm sure the, uh, the, <laughs> the Electroids probably would have that in common with them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you could you could probably get Electroid to, to sell out everything at Yo-Yo Dine for a baby Ruth, I think. <laughs> uh, and let's see. We get some more credits. Uh, we see Scooter Lindley leading the march, and he's wearing this sort of cool spiffy jacket and slacks combo. At the San Diego Comic-Con a couple years ago... Um, the cast from Buckaroo Banzai was there, and Scooter was there, and he's telling a story about that. I, I guess he had a tap background, like all showbiz kids do, <laughs> and uh, the choreographer knew it, and so they put him in front and said, okay, Scooter, I, after a couple beats, I want you to do a little tap move for me, really impress everybody. Mm-hmm. And so he thought, great, and, uh, but you know, they're marching with a purpose behind him, and he's got short little legs compared to those. The rest of the group. So he was he was going as fast as he could, and he tried to do a little maneuver, and he didn't want to get ran over by the pack, so he was never really happy with the way that all turned out. Mm-hmm. He could have done better if, he, if the timing was just a little bit better. I yeah. guess it has to be said, Scooter had to scoot. Yes, he did. <laughs> he, he would have been ran over by that huge group if uh, he had messed up just a little. <laughs> There is no stopping Uptown Girl. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, you see an outtake where he trips and he gets trampled over by the entire... <laughs> they all stay in character, though. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's the dark side of the Institute. We stop for no one. You can be replaced. <laughs> so, so another question. Who are the other guys in the back? Uh, you know, we, we see this one guy who sort of takes off his jacket and sling it over his shoulder. Are these supposed to be... More Kalatni brothers? Well, you know, you, you can identify Jerry Peterson and that one rug sucker. And I think there's at least one of the Kalatni brothers. And, but there's two or three more guys that, that just don't fit any category. Yeah. Who who are they supposed to be? Uh, Blue Blazer regulars? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, it looks like a hot day. Them. I don't think the crew members would be there in suits and ties. So it, it had to be extras or, or something set up for this i mean well maybe would, as yeah. people who appeared in cut scenes hmm yeah i i this is pure speculation i wouldn't be surprised um you know having been on a few shoots myself you know they're running through scenes and you know the cinematographer says you know we need a few more people in the back it's yeah. looking a little barren and you know they could have tapped you know, an electrician and a grip and said, hey, you guys put on suits. We need you in the background. What? Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, you know, that, that, that's a possibility. Um, uh, of course, you know, you, you want it to be, you know, if, if, if W.D. Richter was going to be in a scene, this would be a great one for him to be in. Um, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, if they could have Rick and Mac in the back, that would have been appropriate. A, a place of honor to be sure. 
I'm noticing now it looks like uh, Perfect Tommy's not the only one who has a little costume change. Suddenly, uh, Rawhide has a cowboy hat on. Yep. <laughs> yes, he does. It's it's a little like Indiana Jones's hat. He can summon it at will. That's one of his superpowers. <laughs> uh, you you could speculate that you know the true the true Rawhide is the hat. Whoever puts on the hat becomes the new Rawhide. Oh, kind of <laughs> so. like Fedora in the. Uh... In the third Indiana Jones movie, so somewhat, on. yeah, somewhat like the 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 uh, like the fedora, yes. Mm-hmm. So uh, here is a question for our guests: Drawing upon your vast knowledge over the years, your extensive interviews, who are the Kalodny brothers? Is there any backstory? Is there any information you can tell us about these mysterious Kalodnys and just how many brothers are there? <laughs> wow, Steve. You want to go with that? Well, all I know is that uh, there's that one group shot of the entire assault team from that uh, assault on Yoyodyne that we posted on the bunkhouse just the other day, and that's basically it. There's two rugsuckers and there's two Kalodney brothers. They're kind of swarthy looking. They've got uh, different. The actors have different names, but they really do look like brothers. Hmm. Um, I think they're just some. Blue Blazer regulars who are badasses. Buckaroo calls in when times get tough. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not. I'm not remembering anything from the novelization. That would be the only other source I could think of that might give us a little bit more. And I think it's quiet on their part. Yeah. You know, as as a little side story, you know, and I posted this on uh, on the bunkhouse page uh, a number of months back. You know, when we were going to interview Billy Vera, I was doing a little homework, and I found. There actually is a Pinky Carruthers in West Texas, uh, a, a somewhat uh, prominent ranching family. And so I just figured, well, how many Pinky Carruthers can there be? In the world? <laughs> Number one, there's a real Pinky Carruthers. Uh, seems likely that, you know, that's probably where Earl MacRoush grew up, West Texas, uh, since there's definitely a Texas angle, you know, in the novel and in the movie. Mm-hmm. So it just makes me wonder, you know. Perhaps in college there was a Professor Kolodny. I don't know. Mm. Uh, <laughs> well, looking this up right now, I noticed that there's a Kolodny Law Group in Beverly Hills. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that sounds uh, okay. likely. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, that that would make sense. You know, no, keep it personal. Call them the Kolodny Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> no, no further explanation needed. I think that makes perfect sense. Do it, you know, a nod to your lawyer. Never a bad idea. <laughs> and uh, then moving forward a little bit, so we see uh, Billy Vera having some fun walking backwards. He was commenting when we had him on that he was just told to basically ad lib during this part and just go out of step a little bit and just just have fun. And we see it here; it's kind of cool. Yeah. A little of a stage act for sure. Hmm. Very smooth moves, and yeah, you can definitely see. Yeah, he's not wearing the ninja shoes. Mm-hmm. Steel-toed or not, theirs are not ninja shoes. <laughs> and so here, here's another sequence, a uh, little part that, that's kind of mystified me over the years. So they, they walk past the graffiti on the wall, and it says Buckaroo Banzai, with the exclamation point being part of the eye at the end. But whenever I would see this, I, it just I, it felt to me that the C in Buckaroo felt like the K, and, which is kind of like part of the U. So I always thought it was like, you know, Buckaroo, B-U-K-K-A-R... Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah, oh, and then, man. 
And then that puts something in my mind I, I don't want to be there, and that's Buckaroo Bukaki. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. no. <laughs> I, I was wondering if we were going there. <laughs> Thank goodness I don't know what you guys are talking about. Good. Good. <laughs> we will spare you. That's right. Don't go on the internet, Steve. Yeah. Ever. Stop. <laughs> don't push that button. Far away. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> Have, have either of you been to the approximate place where that was shot? I've been wondering if that spray paint is still up. No. <laughs> I mean, it's not like they come along and, and, you know, wash down the walls every once in a while. And it's, I don't think that the water would take it off. <laughs> that would be awesome if it were. <laughs> yeah. Better yet, I'd like, well, you know, I'd like to think that a really, really devoted fan would go there and, you know, recreate it. So, um, yeah, I could see challenge re- accepted. Yeah, exactly. How far? How far is it to LA from Portland? Well, well we'll meet you there. It's yeah. only about yeah. it's only about twenty minute drive from where I live. Actually, I've passed it a bunch of times. Okay, so where's the nearest Home Depot with spray paint? <laughs> well, we, we'd have to do it with the with tape, of course, so it could be taken down if need be. Okay, okay. yeah, that's you're a good citizen. That's the way Buckaroo would want it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Though, though I remember uh, hearing, maybe it was on the Blu-ray, where they mentioned that if, if you look very closely at it, you can actually see that the graffiti was, was painted over lettering that had been wiped off previously. So I think they, they tried writing Buckaroo, and maybe they misspelled it, and they did it a second time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we're, we're going to sit on that image for uh, probably about another minute with, with more credits, and uh, so a couple more notes about some of the credits here. Uh, music supervision and sound design by Bones Howe. And this was somebody that Boddicker had mentioned quite a bit uh, that, that was kind of a, you know, a real big deal on this film. He was the one who sort of came up with some of the ideas for the, the music that was going to play in uh, Artie's Artery and, and just really collaborated quite a bit with, with Boddicker. So, yeah, Bones Howe. Very prominent producer back in the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what what were some yeah. of the other films that he did? Do you guys have you gone over that already? Or oh, IMDb. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, have you uh, have you done any uh, research on Mr. Howe? I I looked at him a little bit when I was uh, doing some research before. Yeah, he's an American record producer, um, born Dayton Burr Howe, and uh, yeah, he he did a lot of stuff in the '60s and '70s, mostly in right. the sunshine pop genre. Yeah. Uh, Hmm. And uh, yeah, late '60s. That you know, that whole Pet Sounds kind of sound mm-hmm. that didn't come out right. <laughs> <laughs> but he was the music supervisor for films like Back to the Future and Serial Mom. Hmm. What I like about that visual, that just the holding there on the Buckaroo Banzai, is that the film is still rolling. That could easily be a still, but after a while, you can see the camera start wobbling a bit. Hmm. <laughs> Have you noticed that? No. It, it's totally one of those now that you mention it kind of things mm. that, yeah, I, uh, I think in previous viewings, I assumed it was like, yeah. And, you know, as a reference to television, your classic, like 80s TV freeze frame, mm-hmm. you know, end of the episode, everybody's caught mid laugh. So I figured, okay, that's where they froze it. But yeah, yeah. You can see a little camera jiggle. Um, yeah, that, that, I like that. That makes it a little more real and organic. Uh, let me see more stuff they talk about special synthesized sound effects by Alan Howarth. So there's that credit. Uh, we, we had Alan Howarth on our show for, uh, for five minutes of trouble. And he had mentioned that he did some work on, on Buckaroo Banzai, including according to him, the, the sort of three tone, the dee dee dee, you know, that, 
that uh, note we hear on the overthruster. Mm -hmm. uh, so here he gets his sound effect. Though, of course, when we talked to Michael Boddicker, he was kind of claiming that, that he had quite a bit to do in the sound effects. And we do see this because there's something that says for botification, or sorry, for botications. <laughs> I assume that that is uh, Boddicker's sort of sound division. With Michael Boddicker's credits and everything that he's done, he deserves to be a verb. <laughs> I've been botified. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm okay now. Yeah. You know what this song needs? Some botification. <laughs> get out the synthesizers. Uh, but Boddicker doesn't get a credit at the end. He, he did get it at the beginning, I remember. But, uh, but not at this point. I think if there's one distinct credit that's missing is the overthruster itself. <laughs> I would love to see, you know, uh, overthruster appears courtesy of the Bonsai Institute. <laughs> that would have been awesome. That would have been fun in the credits with, you know, Mr. Richter's, you know, docudrama theme that he's, you know, talked about all, all these years. If you had had, uh, you know, the, the, the disclaimer at the end, we wish to thank the, the Bonsai Institute without whose assistance this motion picture would not be possible, you mm. know. I was just going to say, and I think a lot of that was really a byproduct of when they were trying to shop around the television show at uh, 20th Century Fox, uh, because that gave them the opportunity to kind of reinvent Buckaroo if need be. You know, you have this conceit that the Buckaroo, the Institute actually exists, and if it does, then what you're really doing is you're making a series of docudramas about it. So you can change up the cast if you get difficult cast members, or you can, you know, hmm. change up the story so that the details don't exactly align with the real Institute and so on. That's really interesting. So that developed over time then? Yes, it did. Ah, that was not from okay. the beginning. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. Because, you know, going back to the beginning, uh, when we were talking about some of the, com to the compare and contrast, say, uh, Big Trouble in Little China fans. Yeah, you have this, you know, you have the director of the film who's sort of playing along with the game. That, oh, yeah, this really exists. You know, we just made a movie about it, but, you know, the real guys uh, are s similar in some ways. And so, you know, I mean, that's just honey for a fan. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we do get a credit, though, for jet car manufacturer, Thrust Racing. So we did... Uh, mentioned during the jet car scenes, uh, you know, a you know, British company called Thrust that uh, that was doing this sort of thing. So they were involved, apparently, I think, with with the jet car. Do you guys know about that, uh, Dan and Steve? I just know it was a real jet. Um, yeah. I think in some of the stuff that was in the early newsletters had directions to Thrust Racing in California. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I do kind of wonder if it's two different Thrust Racings, because, Josh, you're right, there's the Thrust Racing... Uh, that created, you know, the the record-breaking uh, jet cars of the 90s and 2000s, the mm -hmm. car that broke the sound barrier, for crying out loud, but did not cr break the dimension barrier. Let's point that out. <laughs> Very important to see. Sound that. barrier, but no, well, not the dimension We're missing barrier. a critical ingredient. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I just like to think that that jet car is sitting in a garage somewhere. Maybe well, nobody knows what they have. Yeah, that is a mystery. Yeah. yeah, nobody knows where it is, if I remember right. Nobody knows where it is. Well, I like except that. for the person who has it. Yeah. I mean, you know, sad to say it, it likely was parted out. Mm. Uh, so the, the jet car exists on many other 80s Ford vehicles. But, uh, <laughs> oh, the jet but, was rented out. So that jet engine definitely went back to whoever gave it to the production. Yeah, in a perfect world, I'd like to think it's, you know, it's under a tarp somewhere. Nobody really knows what they've got. 
Is it, oh yeah, I think it might have been from a movie or TV show or something like that. I, maybe an episode of That's Incredible. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd like to think it'll turn up, mm. or maybe it's in another dimension. <laughs> One of the stories is that the uh, Star Trek guys who were working on uh, the various TV shows and movies would steal it from time to time and hide it. And so hopefully they have it somewhere, but I think Dan may be right. They returned the jet engine and it was just dismantled. Uh, I love the Star Trek angle. Yeah. They were, you know, they were t- taking it to In-N-Out Burger. Uh, that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, when it was still in existence, they, they, did, uh, they did hide it a couple of times. But uh, whether they kept it hidden or not, I don't know. How fun would that be? Oh, I could just see if they if they ever would do a sequel to this or some sort of a remake or something that there could be a scene where you just see a garage and it just kind of pulls in very closely and there's a tarp yeah and then suddenly somebody removes the tarp and it's all dusty and it's the jet car but sadly if there's no jet car what are they going to do build well build a new jet car oh yeah i guess there's, there's always, that yeah there's a, the, the 2018 model mm-hmm uh, and then uh, the final note I have here is uh, we, we get that credit for John Lithgow's dialect coach, Roberto yes. Terminelli, <laughs> which uh, had, had that funny story about how he was the, the tailor over at MGM, Italian tailor, who John Lithgow went to uh, with the lines for Lizardo, and then he got him to record uh, his version in a tape recorder, and then John Lithgow went ahead and uh, emulated it. So there's his credit. I don't yeah. think he has any other credits on IMDb. Actually, Speaking of things I'd love to hear on a soundtrack, if it's ever released, <laughs> excerpts from that cassette, if it still exists. Oh, yes. <laughs> no, John, you said it this way. <laughs> no, I would funny. like to hear that myself. Yeah, yeah. There's a funny story that Lithgow is talking about at the uh, New York Film Festival showing that uh, Kevin Smith uh, hosted back in 2011. Uh, I was just, we were there actually at the time, but I was just going over the video because frankly, I don't remember it, uh, you know, <laughs> word for word, but he was, uh, he told the story that kind of came out of that whole dialect coach, um, tale about, uh, walking down the street one day and this Italian guy coming up to him <laughs> and, uh, and with this sort of desperate look in his eye and saying, uh, Mr. Lithgow, I'm your voice in Italy, Italian movies. So I guess this was a guy who dubbed his voice. In Italian film. So it's this meta moment of like, well, wait a minute. So does he like use a really bad uh, American accent for Bucker <laughs> Banzai when he's dubbing the film over there? Or? Nice. Either that or when they have that conceit that he's speaking in Italian. You know, it's the best voiceover guy. It's, you know, it's like the Walter Cronkite of Italy. So, <laughs> Mondo Cristo make the ganglia twitch. You know? <laughs> Cultural perspectives and all. Lithgow told another interesting story. He said that he was going to play Hanoi Shan in the sequel if oh. it was made. Hmm. Can you imagine that? Yeah. yeah huh. I, I, I got, you know, mixed feelings about that. But hmm. on the one hand, yeah, what I do like about it, you know, I like the concept that if they had done a whole series of movies, Lithgow would always be the bad guy, but he would be a different, you know, he'd be in makeup or something like that. So he, he would be a different character each time. But... Somehow, for some reason, it's always Lithgow. Hmm. <laughs> it kind of uh, reminds me of like Austin Powers, where uh, Mike Myers would do the, uh, you know, the different, yeah, different bad guys with all his makeup and everything. Yeah. yeah. 
You know, of course, personally, Hanoi Zan, I, I would cast James Hong, but maybe that's too obvious. Oh, hmm. Yeah. yeah, those were different times back then. I think these days you'd have to go with an Asian actor. Yeah. Well, I think actually Hanoi Shan becomes a problematic character all the way around because he's sort of this leftover of the yellow menace, uh, you know, stereotype, right? Hmm. Which I mean, it, yeah, that's a it's good funny. point. We have this nostalgia for like the Fu Manchus of the world, and it, it, they're fun characters in their way. But at the same time, today, I'm not sure how well they fly. Yeah, that is a good point. Probably would have been a little bit more acceptable back in the 80s, but yeah, not, not really now. Yeah. Unless they have their own sort of, uh, you know, complicated backstory and yeah. you, know, you feel for them. and you know. mm-hmm. well, I mean, you know, that, that brings up a, a, also the point that if you were recasting today, you'd, you'd have some Asian-American actor, no doubt, playing Buckaroo Banzai. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Any ideas who, who you guys would choose for, for that if they ever did a remake? Well, I... I've talked about this before. You know, about 10 years ago, Dean Cain would have been my guy. He's he's part Japanese, played Superman. He would have been a great Buckaroo Banzai. But even he's getting a little old for it now. Yeah, I would have picked Schwartzman if he were, you know, a younger Schwartzman uh, back in the times when he was doing uh, Rushmore. Because he's basically Buckaroo Banzai in that film anyway. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. Yeah, I can, I can. Both of those are both really good choices. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, it's interesting. I feel like that if you have an Asian American actor playing Buckaroo, uh, then that's you know, it's it's about the balance. You know, in Big Trouble in Little China, you have a very Fu Manchu like character, but then you have characters like Wang and Eddie to kind of balance that out. So right. it's uh, it's maybe a little more acceptable if you have good guys and bad guys so hmm. who knows we just we just want a sequel right <laughs> damn right well, i do <laughs> yeah and uh gentlemen that that brings us to the end of the movie uh do we have any kind of final thoughts on the film in general i want more yeah <laughs> you know one of its big criticisms was that it it started you right in the middle you know stuff had gone on before and stuff was going to happen afterwards and you weren't going to get to see all of that in this movie but that was the same uh formula that star wars used and that -hmm. turned out okay Mm -hmm. and i think that we may actually get more at some point even as crazy as things have been um in the last i'd say what year or two with uh whatever legal uh hoo-ha is going on over at mgm um but I mean, Buckaroo has kind of disappeared and come back in various forms, especially you know over the last 10, 15 years. It was funny putting the newsletter together because at a certain point I was like, oh, how many times can we keep picking the carcass of Buckaroo Banzai to fill the pages <laughs> of this newsletter? And then, you know, like a month later, Moonstone announces that they're doing the comic book. So, you know, no, I don't think anybody saw that coming. And I think that there's a distinct possibility that who knows, you know, in the future, he may be back again. Yeah, we're actually putting together uh, content right now just in case there's good news on the horizon. We'll have an issue ready to go. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. Very cool. That's awesome. That's going to be the first uh, new issue in, gosh, when when was the last issue done? Uh, 2016, wasn't it? Yeah, so not that long ago. Okay. Exciting. Exciting. So that's that's part of the the power of the character. He's elusive. (laughs) <laughs> you you just can't put it bring a good man down. Hmm. That's right. Yeah, yeah. No, it was a shame that uh, that it didn't quite work out with 
uh, everything that was going on with with Kevin Smith and you know through Amazon and the whole legal challenges. Uh, I I would definitely like to see this made you know this type of movie made again. You know some new adventures, some new characters, and hopefully hopefully we'll have some more if if the fans get involved if somehow uh, the stars are in alignment and uh, and we'll see more Buckaroo Bonsai. Here, here. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Uh, so, so Brett, any any final thoughts about the film? Now that we've gone through uh, twenty three episodes of this, uh, I'll tell you right now. I mean, I I definitely have much more of an appreciation of this film than than when we started. Uh, you know, Big Trouble in Little China was always my go to film, and while I knew that these two movies were related in in, in a small way, I I couldn't quite. Uh, appreciate it as much, didn't really get it, and after watching this quite a bit, I, I, I can I can really say that I do get it now, and it's a fun romp. I mean, it's it's got some cheesy parts, but it's got some <laughs> great some great characters, great performances. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll never look at Jeff Goldblum quite the same in this film, <laughs> and uh, I'm glad I had a chance to to go through this with uh, go through this with you. So so thank oh. you Brett, for that. It's it's been another fun ride with you, Josh. Uh, what, what can I say that I haven't said in the past 22 some odd hours? I really do need to sit down and watch it from, uh, beginning to end and instead of these little five minute chunks. Um, but you know, it's, it's always interesting, uh, you know, taking part in these movie minute podcasts because, you know, we, we really are literally taking the movie apart Mm -hmm. (laughs) and scrutinizing it on a level that, the movie was never intended. <laughs> so I think simply the fact that as, as we sort of put it back together and put it in the box, it, yeah, I, I'm coming away with an even greater appreciation of this movie. Uh, I, I do see a few more faults than maybe I've noticed before. But, uh, hey, that's actually something I love about movies is they're not perfect. That mm-hmm. gets, that's what gives them their own quirky character and personality. So, uh, yeah, it has been another fun ride. Uh, sorry, this one's ending, but excited to see what's on the horizon. Yeah. Well, I know the fans really appreciate the effort you guys have put into this podcast. I know I've really enjoyed listening to it, and thank you for keeping the flame burning. Oh yeah. Yeah, thank you very much, Josh and Brad. It's really been a pleasure being on the show. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, welcome. Thanks for our pleasure. Support. Yeah, it's it's been great having the uh, the support of the the fans out there who've contributed to the uh, the bunkhouse and uh, to our our great guests that we've had on. In the past, uh, I guess we could do a sort of a quick uh, a quick roll call, just kind of going over the past guests that we've had on this show. So I wanted to give a big shout out and thank you to Sean Murphy of FigmentFly.com. Yay, Sean! Yeah. Yay! Yeah, Sean uh, also helped us uh, get you guys on the show, as well as uh, helping us get in touch with uh, with Michael Boddicker. So thank you. Uh, yeah, Sean is is also one of the big keepers of the of the Buckaroo Bonsai fac out there. So please check out his site at figmentfly.com. Uh, let's see. We also had uh, the great Sid Bridge and James Rodatus from Reels and Wheels. They came on to, to talk about the, the jet car scenes. That was, that was a lot of fun. An awesome podcast. Check yeah. that one out. They do a great job. Yeah. Uh, we had Pete the Retailer from the Star Wars Minute come on. So thank you to Pete. And also thank you to the Star Wars Minute. They're the sort of the granddaddies of the, uh, the Movies by Minute uh, podcast helped to inspire this one and and probably over a hundred that are out there right now over at uh, moviesbyminutes.com so it's all their fault <laughs> uh, we had uh, the great billy vera 
who came on as a guest, uh, Pinky Carruthers. Uh, you know, Billy was great. He had some amazing stories to tell. I had a chance to to meet him in person at one of his uh, one of his jazz shows uh, here in Studio City. So so yeah, thank you to Billy. Well, we had Amy Pavi from Twelve Chimes. It's midnight. <laughs> Our boss. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a big fan of Buckaroo Banzai, and we've appreciated all of her support. Uh, she's also help to spread the word about the podcast. So so thank you for that. Everybody make sure to check out 12chimesradio.com. That's the uh, 12 Chimes It's Midnight podcast. Always a new episode at the on the last Tuesday of every month. That's right. So be on the lookout. And you may hear us. <laughs> and we had uh, Audra and Desmond, Audra Wolfmond and Desmond Miller uh, coming on, sort of uh, repeat champions from the last show. That We had a fun episode for that one. And uh, we had Justin Coote. We had Justin. <laughs> we had Justin, Justin. Uh, for uh, episode eight. So thank you for that. That was a fun one. Overlook, Overlook Theater, a, a great uh, horror movie podcast here. And they, they do a lot of you know events and things like that in the San Francisco Bay Area. Check out the Overlook Hour. And we had, uh, well, we had the fan from the bunkhouse also. We had Curtis Blaze come on. That was a, Curtis. That was a good one. So thank you, Curtis, good job, for your Curtis. contribution. Uh, we had the... Princess Bride Minute, uh, Jonathan Carlyle, along with David Johnson, also big Buckaroo Banzai fans uh, at the halfway mark. And then during, we were talking about the scooter uh, parts in those episodes. Uh, thank you to Jim O'Kane uh, from the Airport Minute, Rocketeer Minute, uh, 007, I think he's doing as well. Always great to have Jim on. Hardest working man in Movie Minute podcasting. And then we had the, the controversial Asterios Kokonos, uh, who is... Uh, passionate about his opinions on the film. That was, a, that was an interesting one, but we thank uh, Asterios for, for being on as well. He's a good guy, folks. Yeah. Listen to his podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, George and Neil from the from the Mogwai Minute, uh, all the way from the real Hong Kong, as well as uh, the real Denver, I believe it was. All the way from Denver, Colorado. Yep. It was, it was quite a commute there. for him. Yeah. Denver being, of course, the site of the next Movies by Minutes uh, gathering that's going to be happening in August. And uh, something that I'm actually going to try to see if I can get to and uh, have a chance to meet uh, many of our fellow Movies by Minute podcasters. So uh, so hopefully get a chance to see you guys there. And thank you to George and Neil. Uh, let's see, we had Tom Taylor from the Indiana Jones Minute come on. And later we had uh, Jerry Porter and Pete Mummert, uh, another returning guest. Uh, so thank you to Tom, Jerry, and Pete for coming on to uh, Five Minutes of Bonsai. Yeah. If, if not... For the Indiana Jones Minute, you would not be hearing this podcast right now. That's right. Yes. It's all due to them. <laughs> Thank them or blame them. We leave the choice to you. Or both. Or both, yes. And uh, we had Sean German on uh, from the... Uh, he's he's doing the uh, Groundhog Minute. Or, yes. Yes, he is. Yes, that's right. No, he's doing the Groundhog Minute. Yeah. Yeah, isn't isn't Sean? He, he's doing the Groundhog Minute, I think, right? Yes, uh, actually, he's doing uh, the Groundhog Minute. Is he doing the Groundhog Minute? <laughs> actually, he's doing the Groundhog Minute. I feel like I'm living this over and over again. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we we thank Sean, uh, also known as the the great S. E. Angerman. Uh, maybe you guys heard our our April first episode of Five Minutes of Bonsai. So hopefully you enjoyed that one. Definitely check out his his also his podcast Five Minutes of Mime. Yes, that's right. It's a podcast about mime. How does he do it? Tune in and find out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sean came in and uh, helped us out with yet another 
uh, episode near the end. So again, thank you to Sean Murphy. Uh, then we had Greg Wyshynski on, uh, the, uh, the podcaster and uh, sports writer for ESPN, uh, a Bonsai fan that uh, you know had seen that we were doing our thing uh, over on Twitter, and we, we worked very hard to get him, and we finally got him on, and it was, a, it was a great show. So thank you to Greg. In the midst of the NHL playoffs, his busy season. That's right. Uh, let's see, we had uh, Derek Cook, who was on. Uh, yes, Monster Kid Radio, mm-hmm. one of my favorite podcasts. Yeah, Definitely awesome. check that one out, folks. Yeah, everybody check out Monster Kid Radio. That was a fun one that we had there. Uh, we had Steve Lasto, who uh, came on. I, I believe he's doing the uh, X-Minutes. The That's X-Minutes. Right. You definitely right. want to the check X-Men. out the X-Minutes. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's uh, not a podcast about former podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> It's not a podcast about divorce. It's a podcast about the X-Men, specifically the first X-Men movie. Mm. So thank you to Steve, and be sure to check out the X-Minutes podcast. Uh, Then we had Michael Boddicker. That was a a nice surprise to be able to get uh, our second cast member associated with Buckaroo Banzai on. And Michael certainly had some some great stories to tell about his experiences working on uh, the music and, and other synthesizer stuff. So thank you very much to Michael Boddicker. And I'm hoping that as a result of what we've been doing with this podcast, that might actually give Michael the impetus to finally get that soundtrack uh, put out that's been awaited by fans for so many years. So we'll see. Fingers crossed, guys. Yeah. We'd love to hear all those tracks. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. I want to hear the Mac Roush stuff. Yeah. Oh, that he's mentioning yeah, about cool. the tape. Yeah. Yeah. That should be interesting if it can happen. Uh, and, and finally, uh, Dan Berger and Steve Matson, you guys are uh, are here to help us uh, finally bring this home. Thank you guys so much for for being on this show and for your your support of the podcast. Yeah, they didn't screw it up too much, did they? <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to having them on. Yeah, those guys are trouble. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you very much for having us on. It's been an honor. I mean, you know, you get the last one. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you both. Uh, do you have uh, any any things you want to plug? Uh, you know, places where uh, you know listeners can find you and what you guys are doing. Well, check out me on my Facebook page. Matson is spelled with uh, two T's and two S's. I put all my uh, Buckaroo Banzai stuff up there. Uh, and look at all the usual places. We'll post on the Bunkhouse. We'll post on the Banzai Institute uh, when and if we do a new uh, newsletter. And hopefully, there'll be some good news about. Uh, Buckaroo Bonsai projects very shortly. And we do have a new newsletter coming out shortly, hopefully, if I get off my fanny. Um, <laughs> yeah, we will uh, probably be in the usual spots there. Uh, that would be the FAQ. Uh, Sean is posting those now uh, in PDF format. And uh, so uh, the same at, uh, oh, God, I'm going to get this wrong. No, worldwatchonline.com. Uh, and that's. Uh, another fan site that has a, a bunkhouse library where we're shown. Uh, you can see me on Facebook or, you know, come on by. That's, that's not a problem. And I actually uh, do a lot of work at a local science fiction convention, Capricorn, which is held here in uh, Wheeling, Illinois, every uh, February around the same weekend as Valentine's Day, both fortunately and unfortunately. <laughs> um, especially because of both the weather and the whole awkwardness of valentine's day being in the middle of this it's a i don't know why they chose that but um you can see me there uh come on by and uh check it out and uh shake hands and we'll sit down and drink a beer or have some coffee all right yeah sounds good 
Well, thank you, Dan, and thank you, Steve, and uh, very much thank you, Brett, for for working with me through this. Uh, I had a lot of fun. It's always a pleasure to collaborate on stuff with you. The feeling is mutual, my friend. It was a fun ride. Uh, not sure what we're doing next, but it's going to be something. You've not heard the last from us. We'll definitely be continuing to do stuff on uh, probably 12 times it's midnight, uh, you know. Yeah, I've had some fun collaborations with you on that as well. Uh, you know, having uh, had a chance to act in some of the stuff that you've written, you've been able to act in some of the stuff I've written, and uh, and yeah, it's a fun show to to keep on. So hopefully we'll we'll continue with that. But as far as movies by minute stuff, I, I think we're gonna take a little hiatus. Yes, about, yes. Well, I mean, it's also a tough act to follow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's there's no sequel, and there's there's no more relation really to to five minutes of. Yeah, trouble. But uh, uh, it's, I want to make this official. We will not be doing a movie minute podcast of the adventures of Ford Fairlane, <laughs> <laughs> or or Remo Williams. The adventures begin. No, nope, that ain't gonna cut it either. <laughs> we might do like two minutes worth of info on that. But yeah, we were to find something to follow up Buckaroo Banzai. I have, I have no clue. Mm-hmm. To send suggestions. We'll ignore them. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's see. For our own plugs, uh, you can visit us at 5minutesofbonsai.com. Check us out on Facebook at 5 Minutes of Bonsai and Twitter at 5 Minutes Bonsai. We also have the listeners group on Facebook called the 5 Minutes of Bonsai Bunkhouse. So please come out and, uh, well, you can join. Uh, we'll continue to talk about this episode and hopefully keep the bonsai discussions going even after this podcast is done. And who knows? I mean, maybe we might do another bonsai episode if we find a you know some interesting person to interview or some new news to talk about so we'll, we'll... some sucker <laughs> sometimes i keep listening so yeah uh so that's about it um any any final final thoughts guys i'm drained <laughs> i have no more to give the coffee is worn off yeah. <laughs> the lease is up all right yeah maybe the last thing to say which might be appropriate is so what Big deal. <laughs> Big deal. Well, this is World Watch One signing off. Thank you for listening to Five Minutes of Bonsai. And remember, no matter, matter where, where you go, go there, there you, you are. are. <laughs> Big deal. <laughs> I'm here today with Ilana Horowitz, back to do podcasting again. And uh, this time, how old are you, Ilana? Six, because last time when I was doing the Big Trouble in Little China one, um, uh, I was like four, I think. You were like four and a half. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like four that. and a half. Uh-huh. But uh, now we're, we're going to talk a little bit about the ending of Buckaroo Bonsai. Now, I know you haven't, mm-hmm. you haven't seen the whole movie. You probably won't for a couple of years. I want you to be ready for it. But we did for watch... For a million zillion years. Well, I don't know about that. We'll see it sooner rather than later. But we, we did see the ending part with the march, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what did you think about the, the characters that you saw? Do you remember uh, some of the characters? Uh, New Jersey? New Jersey was one of them. Yeah. Do you remember what New Jersey was wearing? A hat and a... Maybe it was the one who was with the two belts, or no? No, no, that Maybe. that was that was Reno with the two belts. Oh yeah, yeah. But New Jersey was the one wearing the cowboy outfit. What what did you think of his cowboy outfit? <laughs> he was cool, and the silly part was when he had shaggy pants. He does have the shaggy pants. Yeah, they're called chaps. Yeah. So, <laughs> but the they cowboys were cowboys used to wear them in cowboy time. 
sometimes they did. Yeah. Yeah, they would wear chaps and, and the cowboy hats, the really big ones. But uh, there were some other characters, too. So do you remember uh, some of the other ones that were there? Remember Perfect Tommy? Perfect Tommy. He had his whole body out without any clothes, only one thing. But he could see his body. Do you remember what color his hair was? White, 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 white. Okay, yes, yes, it was. What were some of the other characters that you remember walking? Scooter. Scooter. (laughs) And it sounds like he's riding a scooter. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, was Scooter an adult or was he a kid? A kid, and now he is an adult. Now he's an adult. That's right. Yeah, because this movie was made about 30 years ago. My question is mm-hmm. that um, Buckaroo Banzai, when he was on the hill, he took down the rope, and I think that was a real one. Was it? It was probably a real rope. Did you know, however, Ilana, that they filmed that close to here in Los Angeles? They filmed that uh, at, at the Sepulveda Dam. We can actually go there one time. Would you like to go and, and march yeah. like Buckaroo Banzai? Did you know that um, I passed by that something that looks like that? Oh, yeah? And it kind of looks like a river thing, something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing there wasn't any water when they went. What would have happened if it was raining or there was a lot of water when they were there? There would be a flood. Mm-hmm. Do you think Perfect Tommy's shoes would have gotten wet? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What other shoes did you see that were interesting? Do you remember? Mm. Do you remember what Pinky was wearing? Two pinky shoes. Two two pinky shoes? Well, they were they were like two-toed shoes, weren't mm-hmm. they? It was kind of silly. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think about the character of Buckaroo Banzai, how he looks? What did he look like? He looks so cool! And he looks like... Uh, a regular guy because he doesn't have glasses, but in real life, in the movie, has glasses. Mm-hmm. And he had a bow tie on, too. Have you seen too many people wearing bow ties these days? Sometimes on uh, special events. <laughs> special events. Now that's right. Now, Ilana, I understand that you're also in other podcasts. Is that right? Yes. What's the other podcast that you're on? 12 Trends It's Midnight. That's right. Yeah, you have your first guest appearance on that show. What, what was the name of your character? Do you remember? Billy from La Llorona. La Llorona. Mm-hmm. What's it like playing the part of another person? Weird. It's we- Why is it weird? Mm, because I'm not me. Yeah, but is it fun sometimes to pretend that you're somebody else? Sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think you'd, you'd do another one of those sometime? Maybe. Yeah. Well, hopefully you will. That would be a lot of fun, I think. Well, all right. I think that's pretty good. Any any last things you want to tell the audience? Welcome to Rug Suckers in Five Minutes at a Time. <laughs> that's right. Rug Suckers, Kalodney Brothers, and this was Ilana Horowitz, six years old, back at the mic, and hopefully uh, we'll, we'll have you back for another one, okay? Yeah, this is extra fun. Okay. Thank you for listening to Five Minutes of Bondage. And remember... No matter where you go, there you are. So what? Big deal.